morning, we are concluding our study in the wonderful little book of James. I hope you found it helpful, encouraging, challenging. I know many of you were excited when we began it, excited to see its practical, uh, down-on-the-grounds value to our souls. I hope that that's worked itself out in your heart. Over the last 10 weeks, we've seen James's heart at work. It's the heart of a pastor. He's both been kind and stern and passionately committed to the eternal well-being of his readers. James wants his readers to get to heaven. He surely would want us who are reading his letter hundreds of years later to get to heaven also. James's personality, I think, comes through in the letter, but, but nothing of his personal story. You know, Paul sometimes sprinkles in things about himself in his letter. James really doesn't. But there are traditions about him that have come down to us through the centuries, including two nicknames. One of his nicknames was James the Just. Well, that's obviously a high compliment, isn't it? He was called James the Just because of his profound devotion to personal righteousness and integrity. Now, we've seen something of his passion for integrity throughout the letter, haven't we? So it makes sense. His other nickname is also quite a compliment, but it sounds a little bit cheeky. James is also known as Old Camel Knees. Old Camel Knees. Why Old Camel Knees? Well, apparently, according to the church historian Eusebius, James was constantly praying. He was such a man of prayer that it was a result of many, many hours kneeling before the Lord, worshiping the Lord, interceding for people. His knees got so hard and so calloused, they became like the knees of a camel. Thus, the nickname, Old Camel Knees. Imagine having that as your reputation among God's people. And this passion for prayer comes out in his letter also. You might remember he began with prayer. He began back in chapter 1 by charging us to pray that when we're struggling in the grip of difficult trials, we've got to ask. We've got to go to God and ask for wisdom because he gives generously. He gives without reproach so that we might remain steadfast. So he began with prayer. Now at the end of the letter, kind of as a bookend, he's again going to charge us to pray. I'll change the metaphor a little bit. As a good physician of the soul, James is going to prescribe prayer as a universal tonic. Remember those old patent medicines, good for what ails you? He's going to prescribe prayer as a universal tonic that is good and appropriate and healthful for every situation. And he's going to press us to use prayer, make use of it in every situation. And then as we'll see, prayer is especially powerful as a restorative agent to raise up the souls of those who are languishing in hardship. So do you want to experience the blessings of spiritual health and vitality? Do you want those whom you love 
to experience those blessings also. Brothers and sisters, James is going to press us. We must make use of prayer. Now let's read our whole passage and then we'll break it down. So please turn in your Bibles to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. You can find that if you're using one of these blue pew Bibles. You can find that on page 1013. You might also be helped. In the bulletin, you'll find a gray insert, a sermon outline, that may help you to follow along with James's train of thought. So James chapter 5, we're going to start reading in verse 13 and read all the way to the end of the book. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, the first thing we see in verse 13 is that James calls us to pray in all circumstances and direct our hearts Godward, whatever is going on with us. Every single one of us in this room is covered by something in the first verse. And we ought to direct our hearts Godward. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. So simple, isn't it? Everything I learned... I learned in kindergarten, when you're going through something hard, and this word covers all manner of things, the hard things in this life, take it to the Lord in prayer. Now, a few weeks back, I was talking to the youth group about a biblical perspective on depression. They'd asked me to come and speak on that particular topic. One of the things I said is, look, the fall has messed up the whole world. Human sin has messed up God's perfect and beautiful world that he created. Which means that now, the world is full of things that are bad and sad and hard. It's full of things that are bad and sad and hard. And we, we live in this world, so we inevitably encounter, we inevitably experience things that are bad and sad and hard. Some of these are called natural evils. Sickness, accidents, natural disasters, things that aren't anyone's fault. Harm that's not directly caused by a particular sin, but they're part of the brokenness of this fallen world. Then, of course, there are moral evils, things that are somebody's fault, harm that's been directly caused by someone's sin. And as we move through life, both kinds of evil 
come upon us. And when they do, they cause us suffering. And so the teens and I brainstormed. What are the range of emotions that we have to respond to the sad, the bad, and the hard? The darker emotions, I called them. We came up with a long list. Grief, fear, anger, shame, discouragement, lots more. And we noticed that that these darker emotions, most of them are not intrinsically sinful, intrinsically wrong. In fact, the Lord Jesus himself experienced almost all of these when he encountered the bad, the sad, and the hard. And he was perfectly sinless. But the question is, what do we do with the suffering? What do we do with these darker emotions? And we look together at at a psalm of lament, Psalm 13. We saw what David did, and we saw four things. Number one, he turned to God, leaning into him, not away from him. Number two, he poured out his soul to God, bringing before him his situation and how he was feeling about it. Number three, he asked God to act, to help him in his suffering. And number four, he put his trust in the Lord. He put his trust in God and in his promises. That's a pattern for biblical lament. Not a word we use very often these days, but that's the pattern of biblical lament. It's what David did in his suffering. More importantly, it's what Jesus did in his suffering. Think of Gethsemane. Think of Calvary. Jesus, when suffering, when in distress and deep anguish of soul, turned to the Lord and prayed. And this is what James is calling us to do as well. Is any among you suffering? Is any among you suffering? He must turn to God, pour out his heart, ask him for help, trust in his promises. Or as James more simply says it, He must pray. He must pray. Now what about if your heart is happy? Is anyone cheerful, James asks? Let him sing praise. Interestingly, this isn't precisely the opposite of the first case. James is is not actually talking about your circumstances, but about your perspective. You know, the cheerful person could be going through difficulty and hardship as well, but... In God's good providence, his heart is light. You think that sounds crazy? For the child of God, it really, really, really is possible to go through suffering, even deep suffering, and have a cheerful heart. Doesn't always happen, but can, can really happen. Think of the apostles coming back from their being beaten at the hands of the Sanhedrin. What do they do? They're rejoicing. They're rejoicing with bloody backs. Rejoicing that they'd been counted worthy to suffer shame for the name. Or think about Paul and Silas in the jail in Philippi at midnight praying and singing hymns of praise to God. So even in the midst of severe trials, the believer may know a happiness that this world cannot know and does not understand. Let such a one sing God's praise. But I don't mean to downplay the reality that life just has many straightforward joys also. 
the birth of a baby, a loved one coming to faith in Christ, a promotion at work, some really encouraging conversation, doing something really well at something you've put your hands to, the happiness that you feel during fellowship with good friends, meditating on your sins, being forgiven and being loved by God. Just something simple, maybe, that the Lord is just allowed to go your way. Often things don't go our way, right? Sometimes the, the Lord allows things to go our way. It makes us happy. You're just cheerful in your soul because God has in some very obvious way been good to you. Now, what are you going to do with that happiness? Too often, I think, that's the time when we actually become forgetful. We can become complacent and forgetful in our good times. We don't acknowledge God in them. But James says, ah, are you feeling cheerful? Bring that also to the Lord. Acknowledge that it is he who has given you richly all things to enjoy. Because as he said back in chapter 1, every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. You must sing his praise. Beloved, are you in the habit of doing that? Are you regularly, as the old phrase goes, returning thanks to God when cheerful? Is your mouth ready, willing to praise him? Even if this is a time of great difficulty for you. Let's think about this. Even if it's a time of great difficulty for you. And there's not much light. If Jesus has saved your hell-deserving soul and taken your sins and buried them in the deepest sea of forgetfulness and has made you a new creature and he stands before the throne on your behalf with your name written on his heart, loving you right now, interceding for you right now, then you have a cause for cheerfulness this morning. Let us sing praise. I thought it would be good before we go on. You may not know this song. Many of you will. Let's just sing, and if you don't know it, just listen and worship. And when I think That God, his son not sparing, sent him to die. I scarce can take it in that on the cross my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee. How great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee. How great thou art.
Amen. We pray. We sing praise. All right. James has charged us to pray in all these circumstances. Now he's going to hone in on a particular situation. He calls for prayer for spiritual restoration. Because sometimes it's just the case that a believer is laid very low and their strength is almost gone. What then? I want to read verses 14 and 15 again. But I'm going to read them. I'm going to read them with an alternate translation from the Greek. Verse 14. Is any among you sick or weak? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick or weak and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now James here is clearly laying out a process for healing. The question is, is it physical healing that he's talking about, or is it spiritual healing? And I believe it's actually talking about spiritual healing, not physical healing. I'm going to give you four reasons why I Especially, it might be new to you, especially since our English versions all translate the two words here in verses 14 and 15 as sick. But I think it would be better to translate them as weak, meaning spiritually weak. Let me give you my reasoning. Number one, weak is, is just a perfectly valid translation of those Greek words. The word in verse 14, it, it means without strength. And it occurs many times throughout the New Testament. Sometimes it's translated sick, and it means physically sick. And other times it's translated weak. For example, when Paul says, Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect, what? In weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Those weak weaknesses, that's the same word we have here in James 5. Or when he says to the Thessalonians, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. That's again our word. Now, the word in verse 15, that's a different word. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick or weak. That occurs only one other time in the New Testament, and it's in Hebrews 12.3. Hebrews 12.3. Consider Jesus in light of the sin that so easily entangles us in our temptation to give in. Consider Jesus who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary... That's the same word as in, as in James. So you will not grow weary and lose heart. So I'm, I'm not saying that these two words couldn't be translated sick, meaning physically sick. They surely could be. All I'm saying is that sick and weak are both perfectly legitimate translations for these words. Which means we can't rely on the words alone to help us decide what James is getting at. We've got to seek James's meaning from the context. Always, words have meaning in context. 
So let's consider the context. Number two, what's the overarching situation in James? Well, he's writing to a group of believers who are encountering all sorts of difficult trials. And for some, for some of them at least, these trials are actually getting the better of them. Some of them have been responding poorly to the trials. They're being tempted to fight and quarrel. They're tempted to show partiality. They're tempted to worldliness. They're tempted to selfish ambition. They're not all doing well. There's been nothing so far in James to suggest that their physical health is something that he's particularly concerned about. A process for healing physical sickness would kind of be coming out of nowhere if it came at this point. But think about it. All through the letter, James has been consistently extremely concerned about their spiritual health. So wouldn't it make sense... For James, at the, the end of his letter, as he's wrapping up, to give direction for the restoring of someone who's struggling spiritually. Someone who's been beaten down by persecution or suffering or just difficulties in life. They're barely hanging on, it's almost like. They're almost undone. And that leads to number, reason number three that I think this is talking about, spiritual weakness. Because who is called alongside to help? Who's called alongside to help? It's the elders. The elders of the local church. This person who's been laid low is supposed to call those who care for him spiritually. Not the doctor. And the the Bible's not not anti-doctor by any stretch. Not even someone in the church with the supernatural gift of healing. He's supposed to call his elders. The physicians of his soul. And what is the role of elders? It's the ministry of the word and prayer. And it's prayer that is the remedy that they're supposed to apply here. And again, that inclines me to think that we're talking about a spiritual condition, not a physical one. And finally, number four, is the certainty of the promise that the, that the weak one will be restored. The elder's prayer of faith, it says, will save the one who is sick or weak. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. That's an awfully strong promise right there. It seems sure that restoration is guaranteed. Now, we know for a fact that's just not the case with physical healing. I don't want you to misunderstand me. I believe God heals. I believe God heals miraculously sometimes, even today. I'm not sure that I believe that anyone today has the spiritual gift of healing, but I believe God still heals miraculously. And so I believe it's entirely appropriate for us to pray for physical healing, even in dire situations. But I don't think that's what's talking about here. Because we know it's not always God's will to heal physical illness and disease. Every one of us one day is going to succumb to physical death unless the Lord returns. And yet James here says, the prayer of faith will save. No caveat, no qualification, just the prayer of faith will save. The Lord will raise up. Now what is this prayer of faith? I believe that it's prayer that is tied to the sure promise of God. 
A prayer of faith is prayer for something God has definitely promised, something you could take to the bank, something that we know is according to his will. We can pray for such things believing because we know he will grant those requests. So what can I pray a prayer of faith for? I could pray pray the prayer of faith for the gospel to advance. Because in Psalm 2, God promised Jesus the nations. I can pray the prayer of faith for growth and holiness for myself. Or for my brother or sister in Christ. Because 1 Thessalonians 4 says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. I can pray the prayer of faith for God to convert many sinners. Because he has promised to do so. But, making a distinction, I can pray fervently and persistently for God to convert a particular sinner. But I do not believe that I can pray a prayer of faith that he will because I do not have a sure promise from God about any individual person's soul. I think the prayer of faith is connected to a promise. We can pray for many things, including physical healing, but we can pray in faith, pray the prayer of faith when we pray according to his revealed will. So let me ask you, Do the elders have a sure word from God that it is his will that Sister X, suffering from Parkinson's, be restored to physical health? No, they do not. They can and ought to pray, but it's not the prayer of faith that they know will be answered with a yes. On the other hand, do the elders have a sure word from God That Sister Y, who is a true believer but who is struggling spiritually and downcast and weary of soul, is it God's will that this sister be restored to spiritual health and vitality? Surely yes. Surely yes. The elders can pray the prayer of faith according to God's promises that Sister Y will be spiritually healed. Healed of weakness of faith. Be raised up again to obedience and faithfulness and steadfastness and fruitfulness. All right, I know that took a long time to defend my interpretation here. But here's the upshot. Here's the upshot, brothers and sisters. Here's why I've labored on this point. These promises are fantastic. And I want you, if you need it, to take advantage of James's prescription here. Is any among us weak? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is weak and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Are you in Christ this morning? But if you're really honest with yourself, you're barely holding on by your fingertips. Maybe you're just weary. Weary of struggling for a long time with a difficult and significant trial. Tempted to lose heart. Maybe you're stuck. 
You're stuck in some unhelpful pattern or some unhelpful thinking and you're floundering and you're not making progress and you can't seem to get unstuck. Maybe you're caught in some sin and you realize that you need help to repent and forsake it and you're willing to admit, that's me, I'm weak, I'm without strength. Brother, Sister, take advantage of the wonderful promises here. Call the elders. We will come to you. We will gather around you and pray for you. We would be delighted to do so. You may be nearly unable to pray for yourself. It's our job to rally to you so you may lean on us for support. You may, as it were, grow our faith while yours is weak. And then assume In our best estimation, we understand you to be truly in Christ. We will pray God's promises over you, believing that he will raise you up and restore you to spiritual vitality and health. Don't languish alone when such help is available to you. Let us practice this. Now let's move on now to verse 16. Because I think James broadens the application here. He says in verse 16, therefore, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So a little broader than the, that deep weakness and the elders' prayer, just generally, brothers and sisters, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another. Wow, this is a hard command, eh? Confess my sins to you. That sounds really dangerous. What if I confess my sin to you and you take what I've told you and you use it to harm me? Friends, this takes trust. It requires us to be a church where our culture is saturated with grace and mercy and humility and truth. Are you willing to commit with me to build such a culture here at RGC. Because again, the the payload is enormous. Confessing sin to one another is a profoundly good thing. It is the conduit for God's restoring grace. I confess my sin to you. Now that's not sacramental confession, by the way, like in Catholicism. You can't forgive my sin. Only God can forgive that sin. But it does mean, what does it mean? It means I bring my sin out into the light in front of you. I drag it out by the scruff of the neck so it can be exposed to the truth and put to death with your help. Because what do you do? You start praying for me. You probably minister truth to me and then you pray for me to the God whose ear is always open to his children. And can those be prayers of faith? Well, if we confess our sins, is God faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness? You bet your life he is. What is the result? Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another so that you may be healed. I ask you again, do you want this to be a church that is a place of healing, a place of healing from sin? 
where we can see again and again God's power at work fighting back against sin's fatal effects. Why would we leave these blessings on the table unclaimed? Why would we not take the risk, humble ourselves, let trusted brothers and sisters in that they might pray for us against our sin? If you've been walking with Christ for some length of time, I hope that you've experienced the joy of confessing, maybe with fear and trembling, confessing significant sin to a fellow believer and seeing in their eyes when you've done so. Grief, hatred for the sin, but total love and acceptance of you. No recoiling, no drawing back, just love and acceptance and a willingness to help. And the best help probably is prayer. Because, of course, it's God who is the healer. He is the great surgeon. But if you like, we get the privilege of holding the instruments for him as we pray for our brother and sister who is on his operating table. We lift one another up in prayer. And our work of prayer is truly effective as an instrument of restoration. Look again at the end of verse of verse 16. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. You don't believe me, James says? It's verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain in the earth or its fruit. Elijah was not Superman. Elijah was a man beset with the same weaknesses and foibles and even sins that we are. And yet, his prayers accomplished great things. Now, by the way, when Elijah prayed for drought to come upon Israel for her sin, how did he know to pray for that? Well, it's because he was praying in accordance with the promises of God. He'd read Deuteronomy 28. He'd read that if that the Lord had made a promise that if Israel forsook him, then he would make the heavens bronze and the earth iron and the rain of the land turn to powder and dust. So Elijah was praying the prayer of faith. He was praying the promise of God. Then when, Mount, when at Mount Carmel the people showed some repentance, he prayed effectively for the Lord to reverse the curse. The point is, I think, that Elijah's prayer was powerful, not because he was just an awesome, special, righteous dude, but because he trusted in the promises of an awesome God. There is a caveat. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. The prayer of a believer, one whose life is lived in communion with his God... Elijah, when he stood before King Ahab, he said, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there will not be rain. Before whom I stand. Dr. Sinclair Ferguson says this is the prayer of a child who comes to his father confident because of the depth of the relationship and says, Father, you promised And I'm asking you in the conviction that you will keep 
your promise. So this is the prayer of a believer who stands before his God, who knows the promises of God, who is living on the promises of God. If our prayer seems dull and ineffective, not powerful and effective, could it be because we cannot quite say, the Lord before whom I stand has promised this. So I will go and go to him and bid him to keep his promise. All right, what is James's final word? He's exhorted us to pray in all circumstances. He's exhorted us specifically to pray for spiritual restoration. And now, at last, we see him exhort us to work to restore those who are straying. Verse 19. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. You see that serious straying really does happen in the Lord's church. If I can be so bold as to take issue with the hymn writer for a moment, I do not think that true believers are prone to wander, bent towards wandering. I think in general believers are bent towards faithfulness. But we are tempted to wander. Lord, we feel it. Tempted to leave the God we love. And when someone who wanders, who, who professes Christ, wanders away from the truth, it creates a dilemma. Because if they wander so far as to never return, then they make it clear they were not Christ's sheep in the first place. But we can't look at a brother or sister who is wandering and know with certainty what the final outcome is. We just know that they're in danger. And so we must go after them. This is a duty which is especially given to elders, but it's not just the elders, it's for all of us. We all have a responsibility to one another. We can't stand by and watch one of our flock straying and say, oh well, oh well. Because, of course, Cain was wrong. We are our brother's keeper. We are our brother's keeper. We need to work to bring the straying one back. So we plead and exhort. We woo and warn and rebuke so that the erring one might be turned back. The one that we love might be turned back. We go after one another. And this is also a good thing. You should want your brothers and sisters to do whatever they can to turn you back if you get in a bad way. This is one of the chief blessings of membership in a local church. You're agreeing to be accountable to a particular group of brothers and sisters and you have their protection. So that if you go walk about and you leave good paths, you have people who love you who will put put themselves between you and the danger. They'll risk themselves for your eternal well-being. That's what it means to be part of the church. This is a very, very, very good thing. You should want this. By the way, if you're currently wandering, if you're currently wandering and you know it, you should desire to be turned back, shouldn't you? You should be reaching out for help, seeking to be turned 
And James concludes with the glory of restoration. Because if you embark on such a rescue mission and you get to help a brother turn back to the truth, you get to be used by God to save a soul from death. Only God saves, of course. Only God covers sin. But you will have the immense joy and privilege of being his agent to effect the covering of your brother's sin. Praise God for that privilege. God can use us to get one another to heaven. That, of course, is what about the letter, isn't it? He's been trying it at every turn to turn us back, poking us, prodding us, asking us all sorts of uncomfortable questions like, is your religion worth anything? Is your faith a faith that works or is it dead? Are you in danger of becoming an enemy of God because of your adulterous friendship with the world? Have you been stung by any of anything that James has had to say to you? Is there any way you have been wandering? Allow him, allow us, allow yourself to be turned back. Confess your sin. Ask for prayer. Give yourself to prayer as well that you might be raised up again, that you might be healed. And then to you who have not yet given yourself to Christ in faith, I ask you this. Will you not see that your soul is even now on the road to death? To destruction and hell and eternal sorrow. That sin that you love, even if you hate it, you love it because you will not forsake it to get Jesus. Ask yourself, what will you ultimately gain from it? If the Lord would be so gracious as to give you a deathbed, as opposed to taking you in an instant, do you think that you will look back at the passions and the pleasures and the love of self that you're currently living for and say, I'm satisfied. It was good that I lived for that. I hope at least some of you suspect that you will not be able to say that. So, dear friend, will you not be turned back? Will you not return to the good shepherd of your souls? Because Jesus is still calling sinners today, sinners just like you. And his hand of mercy continues to be stretched out, and the door to his sheepfold is still open. You can come to him. How do I know that you can come? Because he shed his blood on the cross for sinners just like you. And that blood is precious in God's sight. And he has promised, he has promised that he will accept anyone who will come, who will take the blood of his son to be the covering for their sins. So will you not be turned this morning? Will you not go to him and ask to be covered by his blood? If you're not sure, maybe you're not sure how, you're maybe not sure if you want to, would you be willing to do this? Ask. Ask one of the believers here to pray for you regularly 
that the Lord might turn you and that you will turn. Because remember, the effective prayer of a righteous person is powerful as it is working. And God uses the prayer of his people to restore sinners. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess that for many of us, our prayer life does not, is not consonant with the amazing promises that are available to us in this passage. And we believe ourselves to be the poorer for it, individually and as a congregation. Lord, let us make use of the means you have ordained. Let us make use of the blood-bought right to come into the throne of grace and receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need, that we might be restored from sin, that we might be raised up from weakness, that might, we might live in greater faithfulness and vitality to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, may you move us forward. And we pray these things by, by his blood, by which he bought our salvation and our sanctification. We pray in Jesus' name.